You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome back to another episode of the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. On this episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell, we're listening to a Sarah Lawrence classroom lecture from the fall of 1968, in which a then 64-year-old Joseph Campbell introduces a course conference with Ovid's Metamorphosis. A little context at this point may be helpful. Within the first five minutes of the recording, we hear Professor Campbell mention that for every person in the classroom, there were two students who were not allowed to take the course. From this, you may imagine just how popular his courses were and how excited students may have been to be sitting there listening to Professor Campbell discuss the importance of being engaged in the material as well as the requirements of the seminar-style course Sarah Lawrence College calls a conference. To understand what a conference is, I found the following description on Sarah Lawrence's own website. During their first year, every student at Sarah Lawrence takes a year-long seminar-style course taught by their Don, which is Sarah Lawrence College speak for faculty advisor. These seminars help students ease into the Sarah Lawrence style of doing things, writing heavy classes, capped at 15 students, sitting at round tables where discussion flows freely. This course is the first time students will take on conference work, which is an opportunity to connect their broader interests to the subject matter of the class. This might look like a research paper, a film, a script, a sculpture, even a rock opera. A true chance for creativity and academic rigor to meet in the field. I think from that description, one can see the importance that Sarah Lawrence College places on conferences. Professor Campbell goes on to address the issue of upcoming student strikes that are being planned by many students with, apparently, the support of many other Sarah Lawrence faculty, some of whom even suggested that the school be closed down in protest. While it was a fact that there were other student strikes at Sarah Lawrence against issues such as tuition hikes in the late 60s, it seems clear that the protests Campbell refers to are a response to the Vietnam War. Since we can hear Professor Campbell remark, somewhat sarcastically it seems to me, that he can fill his seminar seats with people who want to be students rather than those who, quote, want to instruct the President and Congress of the United States on the conduct of international affairs, unquote. Professor Campbell also states that for him, this is not a politically motivated decision but rather a response to the strictures of classroom instruction, as he cannot reschedule classes due to his already full schedule, nor can he give a good report to someone who's not in the class and does not do the work and participate in the conference. In his book, The Politics of Myth, Robert Elwood offered the example of a woman who recalled Campbell saying that he would flunk any student who took part in political activism. And when she did, he made good on his threat. I think the issue is more nuanced than such statements make it seem. 
What Campbell valued most of all was intellectual and artistic freedom. And as his biographers state in their book, Joseph Campbell, A Fire in the Mind, he likely believed that the collectivism of communism was the preeminent threat in the world at that time because of its repudiation of the spiritual aspects of life, including myth, as well as its suppression of individuality. During the Vietnam War, he seemed to believe that non-intervention would advance the cause of communism and damage the cause of artistic and intellectual freedom. His biographers insist that Campbell, quote, never coerced his students or used threats of academic failure to control them politically, unquote. But he quite obviously, as one can tell from listening to the first five minutes of this lecture, expected his students to be students not activists. Once Professor Campbell takes attendance and gets through the administrative due diligence for the course, he noticeably relaxes and falls into the familiar, good-humored, engaging pedagogical style he's so well known for. So please enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1968 lecture on Ovid's Metamorphosis, and immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and explore some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, here's Joseph Campbell. Uh, this is a pretty packed course. That is to say, we have 30 classes, which to cover this whole thing. And you have each about seven or eight conferences a semester, one every week. And I'm uh, hoping that those who do uh, stay in the course will uh, sort of commit themselves to the whole year. I uh, don't think it's fair to those that I've excluded to accept students who are going to spend only half a year in the course and then drop the second half. That happens every year, and I find it quite unfair. Now, for every one of you who's in the course, there are two who aren't. So uh, just remember that, and do owe something to those who've been excluded so that you can come in. Now, there's one other very complicated problem that we're going to, going to be troubling us this year. At the, uh, perhaps something you read in the spring of the uh, program of a number of committees to have student strikes on campuses of the country, calling them moratorium this year, to uh, sort of compel the withdrawal of the very troops immediately from Vietnam. Now, it so happens that the first these is scheduled for our fourth class. And at the faculty meeting last night, as you can imagine, there was a considerable majority of the faculty in favor of closing the college that day. Well, I told them that closed door open, I hope my class. And uh, I don't want to be unpleasant about this. It's you who are paying to take the course, and you can do what you like. But the committee in question has declared but if their first strike doesn't bring about the result they want, 
They'll have a two-day strike the following month, a three-day strike the month after that, and you can imagine by the middle of the semester you won't be going to school. Uh, so if we're going to have this course, I simply have to do plans. That's all. And if I'm going to teach you at all in the way you teach here, you've got to come to conference. And if you don't, I can't make up time because my schedule's going to be completely filled. So that's the mechanical situation. I don't want to bring in any other interventions uh, here. I can't write a decent report to someone who hasn't done the work. And that's about all I can say about that. Anyone who feels that she wants to participate, not only in this school strike, but in all the others that are scheduled this year, I see notices already of a couple more, um, might do well to simply move into the condition of an auditor in this court and inscribe in one of the uh, numerous courses on the campus that will be cooperating with this whole adventure. And uh, there you are. Now, anyone who doesn't want to be in the class with this understanding, being there as a role, or when I uh, come to make up the schedule hour, need to apply for a conference document. And I can easily fill the constant vacancy. Instead of feels that she can both discuss the president comes in the United States and the conduct of international affairs. So there go the names now. My mind said Alex begins with metamorphosis. It's better to tell that bodies change into new forms. That's the meaning of the word metamorphosis. Ye gods, for you yourselves have brought the changes. Breathe on these my undertakings, and bring down my song in unbroken strains from the world's very beginning, even unto the present time. Now that's an invocation. In these late works, Ovid's a late man, stays 43 BC to 17 AD. This has become a literary formula, and it's a formula that's carried over again in the period following the Renaissance into our later European literary traditions. But in the beginning, this is very seriously intended. Mythology is inspired. It's inspired by the gods. And we have to ask who and what these gods are who can be seriously invoked and who constitute the revealers of these revelations. Just as the Bible is regarded as an inspired text, so is every sacred text in the whole history of mankind. So is every little primitive myth inspired. No early poet or composer, or seer, thought of himself as inventing 
is material. And so it's extremely interesting that when one compares these inspirations from one part of the world with those from another, they turn out to be in accord. They agree with each other, essentially. One of the exciting things about this whole subject that the myths tell the same story in differing vocabulary. On the other hand, myths are applied to the problems and conditions of quite specific times and places so that they differ greatly in their social functioning, in the kinds of society that they support and bring into being. In all of the local orthodox interpretations, Stress is placed on the differentiating aspects, those aspects of the myths that are peculiar to this tradition as opposed to that. Now, in this comparative study of this year, we're going to have to give due consideration to that. This is a terribly important aspect of the subject. This is actually the historical aspect. But we have to give equal attention to the unifying aspects, and this is the more mysterious problem, because where does all this come from? What brings it about that they, uh, one culture to another, should be uh, in such a startling accord? When you come to the end of Ovid, this wonderful book 15, where it pulls everything together. You will read of a sage in Samos, one of the islands of the Aegean. This sage, he's called the Samian sage, is Pythagoras. The dates of Pythagoras are approximately 583 to 500 BC across the world. In India, the same day we have the Buddha, whose dates are 563 to 483 BC. Something very interesting happened in the world, particularly in these two domains about that time, shortly before that time. There took place what I call the Great Reversal. When one studies primitive mythologies, or the mythologies of the early archaic periods, one never comes upon a negative judgment with respect to life. Now life is a horrendous thing. Basic character is that it lives on life. It eats life kills life. That's part of the metamorphosis that Ovid's talking about. Things live by killing other things and then willingly being killed. One fantastic Upanishad verse where it says, Oh wonderful, oh wonderful, oh wonderful. 
am full, I am full, I am full. This is a giving of yourself over to the world's process. Not holding back, not clinging to the little historical ego that is coming to the world and will go out of the world. It's doomed to disappear. And the only way you can say yay to that is by finding your identity, finding your center, finding your substance, not in the phenomenal you that your mother cares for so but in that which lives in you, which lives in all beings, and will always be there, then you participate readily in this game of now you meet me. But about the sixth or seventh century, there came the great reversal, where the word of the butcher, all life is sorrow, is heard. And where the feeling is that which Schopenhauer announces in the world is built an idea. Life is something that should not have been. It is intrinsically, inevitably, forever monstrous. As I say in the early mythologies, primitive and archaic, there is always an exhilarated yay to this monstrous thing. That's the Dionysian mood. Here, on the other hand, in the period of Buddha and in the period of Pythagoras, we hear the song of the universal song. And the problem comes of how do we get rid of it? It's curious. Just at this time, we have Confucius. His dates are 551 to 478 BC. Exactly that time. Uh, the whole negative drift and various answers to it follow these days. Now, in this 50th book of the Metamorphosis, we come to a word from the sage Pythagoras, the Samian sage. And what he says is this. Well, what um, Ovid says is this, though. There was a man here, a Samian by birth, but he had fled forth from Samos and his rulers, and through hatred of tyranny was living in voluntary exile. He had brought himself away from the world. He had fled the world and gone into absolute exile. He, though the gods were far away in the heavenly regions, still approached them with his thought. And while nature denied to his mortal vision, he feasted on with his mind's eye. Actually, he beheld the gods, not with these two eyes on him, but with his mind's eye. Important point, all visionary literature. This is the eye that in the late Hindu tantric images is depicted in the middle of the forehead here, opening up as the third eye. Now, has that eye any reality, and does what it see exist? These two eyes out here are looking at the passing 
phenomenology. This inner eye is not looking out this way at all. It's looking inward. If you look at the world with one eye, the world is flat, two-dimensional. The second eye brings about the third dimension. It reads the third dimension into things. This third eye will read a fourth dimension in, which is the dimension of time. And in the dimension of time, you will find yourself, suppose you look backward in time, you will find yourself disappearing back into your source and all of us back into our source, back into our source, and then look into the future and we we'll all flow back into that again. The time dimension brings together what seems to be separate. Remember years ago, reading in a work by Uspensky called Hirsium Organum, which in those days Sort of bad speaks of the fourth dimension in a very vivid image. So let's uh, imagine that we are two-dimensional beings. That's to say, we experience and see things only as though they were a flash, two-dimensional like this. And let's suppose with this kind of consciousness, just experiencing that, we would look at a tree. What would we see? Well, that would depend entirely on what part of the tree we were looking at. If it were the trunk of the tree, all you'd see would be one sort of circle. You'd experience one little circle. If you put it up at the head of the tree, you'd see a lot of the circles, and you'd think they were all separate from each other. But now, in the course of the third dimension, move that down, and you will see a movement, an action there, and it will all come to one. Or take the one and move it up the tree, and you'll see a kind of action what it will look to, to be like uh, moving up. Now he said, do an analogous thing by imagination with your three-dimensional plane, and move it along the fourth dimension of time, and you will see three-dimensional creatures coming into being, going out of being. Yeah. This eye, then, that opens within, opens to a dimension that is a true dimension, but we are not aware of it right here. It is an actual dimension. And as you get older, and the world you were brought up in, and the people you knew and loved, disappear, appear, appear, as dreams do, get this strange deal of this whole world, which seems so solid and hard and durable and desirable, like foam going away. When that begins to happen, you have to ask yourself, what is the, what is it that remains? What is it that is here? What is that permanent presence? And so that's what is beheld by the eye of the sage. And when Arthur goes to tell us the message of Pythagoras, and this is the message of Pythagoras, and it's the message of the Buddha, and it's the message of all the great Eastern sages at any rate. This is what Pythagoras tells us. All things are changing. Nothing dies. What that implies is that what dies is not. What lasts is. All things are changing. Nothing dies. The spirit wanders. Comes now here. Now there. 
and occupies whatever frame it pleases. From beasts it passes into human bodies, and from our bodies into beasts, but never perishes. And as the planet wax gets stamped with new design, does not remain as it was before, nor keep the same form long, but is still the self-same wax. So do I teach that the soul is ever the same, though it passes into ever-changing bodies. Now that's the idea which in popular oriental thinking underlies the thought of reincarnation. But as uh, a really great Indian uh, author living in the United States years ago, Anandikin Kumaswami points out, there's only one transmigrant. There is only one transmigrating principle. This is why in India it is called Brahman. And in Buddhist tradition it's called Bodhi. And the best way to think of it is consciousness. Uh, each of us is, as it were, a vehicle for consciousness. Just as each of these light bulbs is a vehicle for light. Some are 71, some are 60, some come out, some are terrific. The electricity is the same, but the vehicle is somewhat different from one to another case. And each of us can think of himself then as a more or less adequate vehicle for this consciousness and being principle. There's another wonderful idea that goes along with this, and that is bliss. We are vehicles of being, consciousness, and bliss. And the world, the universe, all these shining stars and all are in bliss, shining with it. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. But when we open our eyes and see how the light bulb cracks, like star, when we identify with the suffering light bulb, when we identify with the suffering body, rather than with the consciousness, the light, we think of sorrow. The Buddha teaches, shift the center of gravity of your thought from this suffering entity, this suffering aspect, and you will find the rapture of adamantine light. This is the doctrine of Pythagoras, and this is the doctrine of Abed. This is what he means by the metamorphosis. This is the sense of his book. That the thing that is, and that all things are, does not die. And it is what comes into the transforming body. Now the interesting thing is that in the course of the development of this great reversal that I spoke of, when the sages say, all life is sorrowful, all life is something that should not be. They think it's going to work, as the Dagas did, to find a way out. And what all of them find their way to, 
And this is what another shape universal is coming up. It is some kind of sense of a mystery transcending all conscious analytical thinking, all painful experiencing, which is and yet isn't the base of all with which one can identify. What in Buddhism is called nirvana, the blown out state. And when we think, we always think in terms of concept, right? Left, up, and down, light, dark, boy, girl, all the kind of. These are concepts, these are categories of thought, categories of experience. They are functions of our organism, the way we experience. In Aristotelian logic, A is not not A. A is not B. But we just pointed out that in that fourth dimension, things come together. There's another dimension in which things come together. Dream. Freud and Jung. And all in the analyst of dream In one dream image, you can find packed an enormous number of entities. But also, you look at the dream and are surprised, as though it were something other than yourself. And yet the dream is your own energy that's brought forth the image of you, so that the subject and the object of knowledge are the same in the dream, although they seem to be different. This dream experience, dream consciousness experience, is something that that inner eye opens to, and is the field of the God. You can define God briefly as the personification of a nature power. And these nature powers operate both in the world outside and in the world you know, of your own body. You are a particle of that nature world. And the gods that can be experienced as outside can be experienced also as inside. And that's another of the themes that Ovid, Pythagoras, Buddha, and all keep bringing along. They're talking about gods as though the gods were out there, but what they're talking about are energies within yourself. Point we get to Freud, Jung, the great point of the whole psychoanalytic movement, that what were thought to be gods outside are functions of the psyche inside. Freud describes that as over a great discovery. Now when you go into Oriental liturgy, you find it takes the great. That's the basic thought of the whole thing. Uh, and so we can read in Jung's example that best way to acquaint yourself with the mysteries of the psyche is to read not contemporary psychoanalytic literature, but the Oriental text. Or these texts are really now. So that's the world that we're going to move into. Now, that little introduction, let me get to some hard basic. There are four basic functions that every living mythology has served. The first is that of evoking and maintaining in the individual a sense of awe before the monstrous mystery of being. what is called the Mysterium Tremendum Etacidans, the tremendous 
a fascinating mystery. The world, the universe, is absolutely and ultimately mysterious. And the kind of thinking that makes you feel that you are in command of that there is no mystery there, is basically anti-pathetic to the mythological mood. Um, a good deal of popular science is of that sort, or school science, where you think you know what the causes of all the effects strike a match. What's the flame? Oxidation. Well, what's oxidation? It's a mystery. As I've already said, in the early mythologies, that mystery is affirmed with gratitude. Then there comes the interlude of the great reversal. But in all of those traditions, there is a third step where, after the great reversal and after the quest within, there comes a feeling of another death that not only can be affirmed, but is affirmed by your very existence. This is the attitude of the Tantra in the later Hindu tradition and Buddhist tradition, and a certain kind of Gnosticism in the way. The first function, then, we may call the essentially mystical function of giving you a sense and maintaining a sense of that dimension of mystery just behind and within everything. You can take any object at all, draw a circle around it, and contemplate that object in its aspect of mystery. Forget that you know what its name is, look. Forget that having studied how to print all this kind of thing, you know how to make a book. Forget that you think you know what paper is. You don't know what any of this is. And the sheer mystery of the being of that thing and of your consciousness of it as an object is exactly the same as the mystery of the being of the universe. So you can take anything, put a ring on it, contemplate it in its dimension of mystery, and this is an object worthy of reverence. It is a support for meditation. That's what's meant by worshipping sticks and stones. I've seen this done with a stone in India, a red paint bomb put around it, then it's no stone anymore. It's the whole mystery of being just concentrated there. You break off your Aristotelian information at that red margin. When you approach the temple, you will see the door behind Sometimes looking rather fierce, sometimes in the form of humans, Sword wielders, sometimes in the form of camels, lions, goats, are like the red mark. What they mean is, as you come through here, you are deprived of your secular consciousness. You don't know what's inside. What you see, you may know how to name when you're outside, but you're looking at its unnameable aspect, and that's what this whole thing's all about how to approach that, how to get your mind so that it can be left outside. <clears throat> the second function of a mythological tradition is to render and 
image of the cosmos, a picture of the world as known to people of that time and place in such a way that it will become a vehicle for the experience of that mystic dimension. So that the whole world becomes, as it were, a holy picture. This is what one gets in the primitive mythologies and in the archaic mythologies. Every detail, every stick and stone has a divine being in it, has a dimension of mystery in it. And the mythology puts you in touch with that all the time. On a simple folk level, they say there are spirits there, spirits of the ancestors, and all that kind of thing of time past. But the, the, the point of it, finally, that everything should be regarded in its mystery dimension. And the image of the universe, as known in its day, in that day, is rendered thus into a holy image. Now there's an outcome. Stunned me, Christmas time, to hear it coming down from the moon, the first verse of the book of Genesis, which has no idea that there was anything one quarter of a million miles away from the earth. You would by then have gone way up above the firmament and uh, would be at the throne of God himself. And the astronauts had just told us there's no water up here. And we hear coming down. And he separated the waters above from the waters beneath and he brought the firmament in. And I've talked with people who listen to that and they all thought it was so marvelous. And I say, well, God is 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years out of date. That was the idea of the universe that was communicated to the Hebrews from the old Sumerian. It's the view of the universe you get in the fourth millennium BC. And when the Bible was put together in the second or third centuries BC, it was already out of date. The Greeks already had a basically Ptolemaic system, they had measured the dimensions of the globe on which we live to within a couple of hundred miles. This kind of discontinuity between the image that's offered to you for your spiritual meditation and the image that you know darn well is the one that you've got to live in is one of the calamities of our period. If you want to know what's behind alienation, quite fashionable word these days. This wouldn't be a bad place to start your research. A cosmological image that can be credited and is the best that man of that period can give, which nevertheless will become a vehicle, or nevertheless, which through its own model will become a vehicle in the sense of majesty. If you really want it, look through a telescope. Get to know what those little dots are out there. Some of them are galaxies, billions of stars. So far away that not even your great-grandchildren are not able to fly. It's a terrific image that our world now offers to us. It's not that that's directly off from the pulpit. Every single traditional religion in the world today is facing this ridiculous problem of separating 
the experience of the world that you have to meet when you go out from the world that you're supposed to use as the vehicle for your religious contemplation. And the function of poets is to bring these two experiences together. And the fact that in our academic world and our libraries and our bookstore catalogs, religion is separated from poetry as the two are sent out under different headings and different faculties and so forth is one of these splits. The poet is exactly the seer seeking the revelation through the world of his contemporary life. The revelation is that miracle dimension that spoke to man in the beginning. The third function of a living mythology is to validate and support the moral order of a certain specific society. And not only the moral order of that society, but its existence. Now, it's here that great differences appear in emphases in the knowledge. The kind of value system that is proper to a primitive hunting tribe is quite different from that proper to a primitive planting village. Different, different The young people have to be initiated into a, a different kind of society. Likewise, again, when we come to the great high civilizations with greatly differentiated social orders where we have professional priests, professional uh, governing people, professional trading people, all trained to totally different characters, there's another kind of mythology that has to be brought into being, otherwise the society disintegrates. But it's this historical focus of mythology that is most important to the society in the training of youth, because the individual has to be built into the organism of the social group that has brought him into being, that has kept him into being long enough to be able to think, and then it's going to have to be defended by him. What one finds in uh, studying traditional society is that they are utterly ruthless in their liquidation of people who do not conform or cannot conform. They just get rid of them. It's only in late periods and in very powerful societies like ours that Thebians are not only permitted, but in fact cherished. The individuality is wiped out in all the traditional mythology. The aim of the social order is to bring forth patterned creatures. And the one word that is the devil's word in all of these is I, ego. Now from the time of Greeks, the European tradition has fostered the individual. In the traditional cultures in the Orient to this day, 
Nobody is a human being. Everybody is a special kind of human being. In Sanskrit, there isn't even a word for individual. In Indian art, you never depict that individual. You depict a young person happy, a young person howling, an old person, a warrior, a king. And it was in the garments and beards that one's social character was depicted. You knew who a man was, you knew he was a Kshatriya or by the kind of beard. You knew he was a Brahmin by the kind of beard. You knew the woman was the wife of a Brahmin by the kind of sorry and clothing she wore. Nobody was an individual. But being an individual brings about a certain responsibility. You become responsible for your act. In the traditional society, your responsibility is to do as told. Not, I want, but thou shalt becomes the rule. And now the great problem in our development is that I want should become not thou shalt, but I recognize as proper, as coordinate with my own life evaluations that I should act in this way, that way, and another way. This self-responsible action, in contrast simply to being the vehicle of an order, the one who carries out an order is the big process, and this is a new thing, and this is what differentiates the European heritage Greeks and the Romans, right from the Renaissance on down, from all the others of the world. I'm saying this uh, on the basis of a lot of thinking about this, trying to distinguish one mythological tradition from another. What is the thing that distinguishes? And the thing here is this fosterage of the individual, even against the society to a certain point. The fourth and final function for a traditional mythology is to carry the individual through the inevitable stages of a life in the terms proper to and possible in that specific society in which he is living. Not training him to a society which ought to be no, there's no society that belongs to me. Not training him to some other society somewhere else, but to this one here. And then, you know how it is when one reaches midlife and has just about mastered the techniques the society requires of you, the things begin to slip. And the society then has to catch you so that you just don't, uh, you know, crack up and give you something to do that will hold you till the end. Mythology has to carry one from the period of dependency of childhood to the period of responsibility of midlife, and then out. And you know how it does it. 
tells you nice things about what you're going to find when you go out the dark door. The problem there reminds me always nowadays of a story I once heard about Bonham of Bailey Circus. They had a free tent, a tent of freaks in it. And people would pay an extra sum to go into that tent. And there were so many interesting things to see. The midgets, the tallest man in the world, the fattest woman, the bearded lady, and all this kind of thing. That people would get in there and they wouldn't get out. And the problem of this uh, congested tent was considered. Until finally, one brilliant idea came along. Let's take down the exit sign and put up a sign saying, to the grand egress. And <laughs> thinking that it was going to be something safe, you're suddenly outside and outside. And uh, that is the problem of getting people out the door of life. <laughs> so these four functions then are all coordinated. The mystic function, what might be called the cosmological function, which is taken over by our scientists. Then the sociological function, which is taken over by our legislature. Psychologists and sociologists are trying to get in on the act, but they fall down on their faces too often. And uh, then what might be called the psychological problem, that of carrying the individual into and out of this world so that he can live in it as a self-respecting member of a viable society. Now we're going to have to look at this more these standpoints. They can be looked at from any one, two, three, or all four of these. We have whole schools approaching it from the psychological, whole schools from the sociological, with Durkheim, for example, as a, a, a representative, whole schools from the cosmological standpoint, comparing cosmology and so forth. And then old schools translating everything as in monasteries and so forth into the mystical function, letting the best go. So we're trying to give as well as we can in these, as I say, 30 classes that we've got and 15 conferences for each of us this year. We try to cover all these things. Now, let's look at the beginning of the book. In the beginning, there was chaos. Now, one we usually think of chaos as a kind of noisy situation. Not so, the old traditional idea of chaos. Chaos is complete leverage. It is a situation where nothing is distinguished from anything else. Up isn't distinguished from down. Right isn't distinguished from left. Dark isn't distinguished from light. Uh, male isn't distinguished from female. And then says Ovid, Deus brought order out of this chaos. Now in mythological imagery, this chaos situation is compared to the egg, the unfertilized egg. And the activation of the egg is compared to the male sperm. And so we come right into the beginning here with mythological personification, possibly, the goddess and the god, and through their divine connubium, their divine mate, 
transformed the world as their child. That's one of the images for the production of the world. And that's the one Arthur gives us here. Deus. Now, those of you, and I think those of you who have studied Latin, know that the word Deus can be read of God, the God, or God. Arthur doesn't make a distinction. This is one of the images for the production of the world. Sexual Congress. There are many images. And a single mythology can give you all of them. This is quite the point. The poet does not take his image concretely. You may think of Davis as a potter fashioning clay. Another way done. We'll see more. You must realize a mythology is a magnificent poem. Every civilization has grown out of a poem, out of a mythology, and the details of its culture world are inflections of the poem, aspects of the poem. And when you read a poem, you don't take it concretely. Suppose someone wanting to celebrate your beauty should say, you know, you are like a rose. And then uh, next week, with other inspirations, you're like a swan. And then suppose you write back and say, well, we did make up the beauty. This would be so prosaic, and I hope you would lose the case. The poem of the myth. It is as though there were, or had been, a situation of chaos out of which the divine inspiration brings forth order. And then notice the way the order is described. The four elements take their places. Fire, air, water, earth, at the bottom. Begins to come. Now this is one of the motifs that you find in all the high mythologies of the world, the four elements. In the Greek, fire, earth, and water. In the Hindu mythology, there are five. Ether, in this order. Ether, air, fire, water, earth. And in the Hindu mythology, each of the five elements is associated with one of our senses. Ether or space, the, the Sanskrit words akasha, which, which can be translated either space or ether. That is the element of sound. Sense of sound. Hearing. It's associated with that element. Then air or wind. Feeling. Touch. You feel the wind. Then, fire, which is the first of those that can be seen, so sight. And then, the water of the mouth, taste. And then, the earth, smell. Those are the five senses, those are the five arms. Now, in the Greek tradition, where the four elements are named, there are two powers that bring them together and separate them. 
And these powers are strife and love. Love unites and strife separates the elements. When we go to the world of the Aztecs and the Maya, we have these four elements. Fire, earth, and water. A whole world age is associated with each of them. And the fifth stage, our own, is called the age of movement. Now that movement is what pulls things together and separates them. But in the Aztec tradition, fierce kind of ferocity in this, what unites is strife. That's what brings people together. Brought me together with the faculty yesterday and me. <laughs> they, uh, they are really face to face with it there. And in the strife, there is always a winner and a loser. The pair of opposites are synthesized right there. The whole mystery of life. Life wins and life loses simultaneously. The high symbol of this in Aztec life was war. War was a sacred mystery that held the world together. It was called the Flowery War. And if there was no tribe or neighboring people around that you were ready to involve, this could be celebrated right on the campus itself in the form of the sacred basketball game. And in the high games, the captain of the losing team was physically sacrificed with a flint knife by the captain of the winning team. He was the flowery offering. So this is war mysticism. In the Hindu tradition, the symbolization of this parallel is usually rendered rather in the way of male and female, and so the the phallic symbolism of the lingam and yoni, the male female organs united, is the prime image in the Hindu world, not in the Aztec world, strife. I'm bringing these out to point out how just a little inflection in the interpretation of the symbology determines the whole character of the culture. Now, each of the following, each of the um, elements, and, and differs from culture culture, is associated with one of the four directions, and in the middle, we have the uniting point. Every temple has that form, the sanctum in the middle, that mystery that holds and moves, and the four points of compass, often with colors aside. In China, we have the five elements also, but they are different names, and I haven't found out. I don't know anyone who uh, knows that when this change took place, how the Chinese got it this way. But in the center of the earth, and then around are the elements of metal, wood, fire, and water. That's, that's quite strange, with earth in the center. But we have in all of these traditions, this is one of these archetypes that comes back, back, back. The image of, my gosh, time to that. The image of uh, the elements. Then says Abed, these in combination produce the sphere of the earth. This was being written just about the time that the priests arrived were putting the Old Testament together. By the way, the very first verses of the Old Testament, the spirit or wind of God hovered 
brooded or moved over the waters. The waters are chaos, and the wind is chaos, and you have exactly the same figures. Only in the Hebrew mythology, with its terrifically patriarchal stress, there are no goddesses. So you don't personify chaos. That remains what? You do personify the wind as God. The female powers in the Bible remain in the elemental form, and the masculine power is divine. Then there come into being the gods. Now please get this straight. In a polytheistic system, the gods come into being and go out of being with the universe. They are personifications of the powers of the universe. And the universe is brought into form by another kind of mystery altogether, which in here is of the same place, Davis. It's the same word, but it doesn't have the same meaning. The, the character of this Davis, one mythology, the character will be one time, another, 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 benevolent, malevolent, and all that. Point is, it is the mystery that lies behind the whole being of this thing that characterizes the feeling of it is to diminish it. It is an absolute mystery. Consequently, for any people to say, as we do in the biblical tradition, we know who God is, what he's like, whom he likes, whom he doesn't like, what he's expecting us to do. This is regarded as idolatry in a polytheistic system. You can't concretize the mystery. And when that is done, you've lost your mythological and moved into a theological mode of thought. Now I want to come to this next great theme. The gods, there are the agents through which the mysteriously impersonal universe is governed, is held in play, is put in play, and you can think of them either as personifications of powers or powers not personified. There was a great Indian saint in the last session, Ramakrishna. When people would come to him to talk about religion, he'd say, How do you like to talk about God? With form or without form? And by when you say without form, that means no personality, no qualities such as mercy, justice, and all that. Just no characteristics. Well, now the world is coming to being. And it's going to go through a certain series of ages. The great classic image was the four ages gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What you're going to find is these great mythologies always divide up into four. Four parts of the compass, four world ages, four castes, four good things, all that. Four is the number for totality, fulfillment, stabilization. Three is the number of movement. Four is the number of space, north, south, east, and west. Three is the number of time, past, present, future. Three also is the number of the vertical, above, below, and here in the middle. So three plus four gives you seven, which is the, another number of totality. 
three times four gives you twelve, which is another number of totality. And from there on, you go on and on and on and have a lot of fun with numbers. And it's amazing the way some of these numbers keep turning up. Let's say gold, silver, bronze. In declining value, declining power, the world is running down. And when it has run down, it will be reabsorbed back in chaos. And that is the meaning of the flood. The flood is the end of one world age and beginning of another. There are two kinds of flood image in mythology. One we might call the cosmological flood, which has to do with the coming into being and going out of being of a world. The other is that flood treated as a historical event. The world was created and there came a flood, and then it was recreated. The flood was not a historical event. There was no world flood. There was no Noah, and a lot of silly people out looking for Noah's off and not after that right now. Uh, there was no ah. Uh, so what the got to America and saw all these varieties of animals were here, and those up to the varieties he knew about in Europe and Asia, and he could not fit them. He was a new thing. <laughs> Now, in India, do we have the four ages? Each age is called a yuga, the four yugas. And their names are, I'm probably not going to have to pick up here next week, I can see, so we'll go through this one a little bit. They're called uh, Kripta, Treta, Bhapara, and uh, Kali. Kripta means the best. At that time, the cow of virtue, everything's a cow. Yes, he's standing on four legs. People are born with perfect knowledge of virtue. Uh, they're born in couples, so there's none of this anxiety of who is he. It's right over there, and everything's perfect, and the, the, the leaves uh, rustle with melodious sounds, and you can pick up uh, sugar and honey right from the ground, and the water's run wine, wine, and all that kind of thing. Then, uh, the second age is called Treta Yuga, which means three, because the cow is now standing on three legs. But it's still pretty well standing. At this time, people have to pause a moment, but then they know what's good to do, and they do it. And they're a little less tall and happy than they were, but they're as happy as they can be, so they don't know how happy those before them were. Then we come to get, begin to get into trouble in what's called the Dvapara Yuga, where the cow is standing on two legs. Now, no cow can comfortably stand anyway, so a crop has to be supplied, and the crop is scripture. This is where religion becomes necessary. If people are perfect religious, know exactly how to act, you don't have to instruct them at all, so religion is sort of unnecessary. But at this time, the cow is on two legs, we put the crop so there she is. Uh, finally, of course, you know the age that we live in, and you know how it is. This is called Kali, or the worst. Here the cow is trying to stand on one leg, to say it isn't standing at all, for flat on its face. People don't even read scripture, or if they do, they read it improperly. And uh, they don't really understand 
very important. And so we move toward an Indian thinking that really works the end of the world. The mixture of cash, or as we call today, desegregation. <laughs> the uh, aim of Indian society is to hold to the distinction. Just as in an organism, the different organs must remain distinct from each other, and the mixture of caste is known in biology as cancer, where the distinction between cells and organs begins to break down. So when organs become just one mush of equivalent people, all living miserably, imagining themselves to be very bright, because all the machines they invented to take the place of moral virtue and physical capacity, it's time for the flood, and that, my dears, is coming. <laughs> now, in the uh, period of Hesiod in Greece, 8th century BC, the Greeks introduced, well, I'll come to the Homeric tradition later, how that comes along, but they introduced the Homeric age between the Bronze and Iron, so you get five world ages. But the uh, norm for the world traditions is four. We have the same thing among the, the Aztecs that I said. Now, every year, every year, the year is born, in the springtime, summer it reaches its culmination, in the fall it goes down into night, the year repeats this whole cycle of the bright day and the decline and then the dark night of the flood. Every year, every day, one cycle within another. That's the mystery of things coming into being, going out of being. That's the way it is. And if you try to hold on to this one that is now, you've lost contact with the round. The middle is the point where movement and rest come together. And you may be living here, but in your meditation, that inner eye, you can go right there and watch it roll. And roll with it. As Japanese say, rock with the waves. And to meditate on this, all you have to do is breathe. When you breathe in, you can hear stop. When you breathe out, you can hear hum, hum, stop, hum, stop. Sanskrit, hum, stop. Means wild gander. And the wild gander is that bird which is at home on the land, in the water, in the air, the lord of the three worlds. And he becomes in India the symbol of the spirit, the hamsa. The breath is the spirit, isn't it? The spirit just means breath. In Sanskrit, it's the prana, the breath. And that hamsa, the sound your very breathing makes, is the mantra or meditation on the breath. And then after you've breathed, Hansa, Hansa, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, you'll begin to hear it the other way around. That hung. Hung means I, and that means that. I am that. You are that breath. You are that spirit. That's what you are. That's what you breathe in, and it animates the dead flesh. And so, the cycle, which is the word eon, which is the year, which is the day, is also every breath, every tick of the clock, and you can identify yourself with, with the breath, just by the kind of That's how a mythological image can be translated into a, uh, a 
meditation form and lead to the mystical realization. Or, interpreted in terms of the declining world, it has a moral implication. Or, seen in terms of the coming world into being, going out of being, it has cosmological implication. And there's that simple image that we find all the correct. So, that's for this. Now, the next flash, I want to talk some more about topic. The plan following that, I posted in the public board, will be Homer's uh, Odyssey, where we see the mythological adventure in a grand epic form. And then the class on that catastrophic October 15th, which is the day of days, uh, we will begin talking about phrases broken about for those who uh, come to class. Professor Campbell's topic for this class lecture is The Metamorphosis by Ovid. Ovid was one of the great poets of Latin literature, and he was the younger contemporary of Virgil and Horace. Ovid was exiled at the age of 50 by Augustus in 8 AD for reasons that are two millennia later still unclear. Ostensibly, Augustus claimed that Ovid's book Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love, was the reason for his exile. Ovid himself says that the cause of his exile was Carmen et Error, a poem and a mistake. But the poem was written seven years before his exile, and because Ovid wasn't immediately punished when his Art of Love was published, one can only imagine that it was used as a convenient excuse for Ovid's banishment. The mistake, as Ovid calls it, is perhaps the greater reason, but there's only speculation as to what mistake Ovid made, since none of the principles elaborated on it. I can only assume that it was related to some sort of laissez majeste, some offense against the dignity of the emperor and or his family. Speculation about Ovid's offense has run through the political as well as the sexual hypotheses. I suspect we'll never know the real reason for Ovid's exile, but it does seem that he was involved in some sort of scandal surrounding the royal family, and it may simply be that Augustus held Ovid and his erotica responsible for influencing Augustus's daughter and granddaughter to flagrantly engage in adulterous behavior. Or perhaps Ovid himself had affairs with these women, who were both exiled by Augustus, by the way the granddaughter, in the same year as Ovid. Rumors have even gone so far as to suggest that Ovid discovered incestuous relationships between Augustus and his daughter and granddaughter, or perhaps at least engaged in gossip about such a rumor. Or perhaps he supported Augustus's son-in-law in some sort of plot against the emperor. Ovid himself chose to remain silent regarding the exact circumstances of his exile, in his longer poem, Tristia, he addresses Augustus, writing, I must be silent. I'm not so mean as to renew your wounds, O Caesar. It is enough that you have suffered once. What we do know is that Augustus had decided that it was his charge to reform the dissipated lascivious morals of his people and perhaps he was simply angered by Ovid mocking his moralism, a moralism that may have clearly been hypocritical to anyone with any knowledge of the way the royal house conducted itself.
Ovid's Metamorphosis is a sprawling work which, as the poet himself wrote, seamlessly weaves its way from the world's beginning to our present day. Professor Campbell, having dispensed with the course announcements, began to read from the prologue of the text, noting that it's an invocation, a prayer, a prayer for the poet's words to be inspired by the gods. My soul would sing of metamorphosis, the poet writes in my favorite Alan Mandelbaum translation. But since, O oh gods, you were the source of these bodies becoming other bodies, breathe your breath into my book of changes. Ovid is literally calling on the gods to inspire, to breathe life into his book. Professor Campbell puts the question to his undergraduates, who and what are the gods? He answers his own question, of course, in a marvelously lucid manner, speaking in terms of historical settings of myth, as well as addressing its more unfathomable mysteries, such as, where does it come from? Campbell jumps ahead to the end of the book, book 15 to be exact, where Ovid writes of the remarkable man called Pythagoras, a man who, to quote Ovid, hated all tyranny and so voluntarily chose exile. Hmm, that sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Using his astonishing intellect, Pythagoras probed all things and learned about the beginnings of the universe, what caused things to happen, what the nature of things is, and even what God is. Whatever had been hidden, Ovid wrote, Pythagoras revealed. Professor Campbell notes that Pythagoras was a contemporary of the Buddha and remarks that, quote, something very interesting was going on in the world at that time, unquote. And that very interesting something was a tectonic intellectual and perceptual shift, which Campbell refers to as the Great Reversal. In the early archaic period, he says, one never finds a negative judgment of life, even though life can obviously be horrific at times, as demonstrated by the fundamental condition of life existing at the expense of other life. Life eats itself, and this is part of the metamorphosis of shapes and bodies Ovid is describing. Around the 6th century comes the Great Reversal, and Buddha begins to point out that life is inescapably sorrowful and fundamentally problematic for humans. So how did we overcome this problem? In Volume 2 of his Masks of God series, Oriental Mythology, Campbell wrote that the Great Reversal was a time when, quote, for many in the Orient as well as in the West, the sense of holiness departed from their experience both of the universe and of their own nature, and a yearning for release from what was felt to be an insufferable state of sin, exile, or delusion supervened and death was no longer viewed as a continuance of the wonder of life, but as a rescue from its pain." Unquote. Attention and focus then began to shift to the inner world and its mysteries, away from the material world and material reality. The contemporary German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk has remarked on this shift in his fascinating book titled, You Must Change Your Life. 
From that point on, Sloterdijk writes, being human meant running oneself as a workshop of self-realization. Sloterdijk is of the opinion that the disillusion with the world started long before Buddha's time, writing that, quote, it is sufficient to note that the earliest articulations of the difficulty of being a human date from the era of Mesopotamian and Mediterranean empires. One finds anonymous authors speaking for the first time of an unease in the world that points beyond any unease in culture, unquote. This unease, one might even say dis-ease, was dealt with by seeing, not with one's physical eyes, but rather with one's inner eye. Just as an aside, I wear a ring that displays a blindfolded cat, and around the bezel of the ring is engraved a quote in French from Paul Gauguin, which translates to something like, I shut my eyes in order to see. The inner eye opens to dimensions of time and immateriality and begins to seek answers to questions such as when people and things begin to disappear, when they go away or die, what is it that remains? What is that permanent enduring presence? The thinking emerging in the great reversal is that one can find a way to transcend all conscious thought, all painful experience. Professor Campbell suggests the best way to answer these questions is to realize that it's all about consciousness. We are all merely the vehicle of consciousness. In the Metamorphosis, Pythagoras tells us, and again I'm using Mandelbaum's translation, For all things change, but no thing dies. The spirit wanders, here and there, at will. The soul can journey from animal into a human body, and from us to beasts. It occupies a body, but it never perishes. And a few lines later, he says, All things flow. All things are born to change their shapes. And time itself is like a river flowing on an endless course. What was is now no more, and what was not has come to be. Renewal is the lot of time. Unquote. And finally, Pythagoras enjoins us to, quote, know this, the heavens and all things beneath the heavens change their forms, the earth and all that is upon the earth. And since we are parts of the world, we too are changeable, for we're not only bodies, but winged souls. Professor Campbell echoes Pythagoras by noting that the gods are personifications of the powers of nature. Those nature powers are in ourselves as well, since we are a part of the natural world. The gods, Campbell goes on to say, are therefore both outside us and inside us as well. They are energies within the self. The movement of the great reversal, as Sloterdijk conceptualizes it, was a withdrawal a renunciation from the outer material world into the ascetic, practicing, even athletic, spiritual development of the inner world. To be fair, the representatives of these traditions in the East as well as in the West were reluctant to see their practice as a withdrawal from the world, but their language is informed by just such a notion. And here again I turn to Sloterdijk, 
And he writes, quote, Recall widespread distancing metaphors such as flight from the world, a fuga mundi, a flight from the times of fuga seculi, passionlessness, apatheia, detachment or refuge in the Dharma path. The last great symbol of distance of this type is the angel of history in Walter Benjamin's interpretation, which backs away step by step from the flood of disasters, its eyes fixed in disbelief on the world scene. The concern of the most resolute secessionaries is not simply a fascinated retreat from reality that no longer invites participation, but rather a complete reversal, a turn away from the superficially manifest, which means a turn towards something that is better, true, and real on a higher level. Unquote. Now, if you enjoyed that paragraph, you simply have to read Peter Sloterdijk. He is funny, and he invents neologisms like nobody I've seen since Shakespeare, almost, and uh, is a thoroughly fascinating read. But back to the great reversal. Such a reversal must, I think, be undertaken in the spirit of what I call mythical thinking. Mythical thinking is a mode of thinking and imagining that's fundamentally ironic. It allows us to develop a kind of double vision that helps us make sense of this terrifying and fascinating mystery of existence. It allows us to have a mind simultaneously in the real while searching for the transcendent at the same time. In the book, The Mythic Dimension, Joseph Campbell notes that the goal is not annihilation of one condition or the other, but celebration. We are better served, in fact, by thinking yes and rather than either or, privileging the type of thinking Campbell called the true poetry of the poet rather than what he called the poetry overdone of the prophet and the poetry done to death of the priest. Thinking mythically reclaims for human beings an intimation of the sublime embedded in the human experience. Its passions and sufferings, changes of fortune, joy, depression, and pathos. While thinking mythically won't allow us to remake the world, it does allow us to experience the transcendent as simply another constituent of the natural world, and as such, a constituent of our own nature as well. A nature whose existence, by the way, isn't tied solely to the material world. Ovid's Pythagoras says, quote, Your bodies, whether they have been consumed by flames upon the pyre or worn away by time, can suffer nothing more, I say. But over souls, be sure, death has no sway, unquote. Each soul is eternal, Pythagoras teaches us, and consistently takes on another shape, another form, which is why Ovid wants to sing of metamorphoses. The last Latin word of Ovid's metamorphosis is vivam, which means, I shall live. Ovid certainly continues to live on through his work, but his present life isn't one of merely posthumous fame. The light bulb may burn out, 
to use Professor Campbell's well-known analogy. But the light, the electricity that lights the light remains and finds another bulb, another shape in which it can manifest. How it does, or in what form it assumes, remains to be seen, I guess. But in the end, while living in exile, Ovid discovered the real meaning of freedom. In Tristia, he writes, it's a kindness that the mind can go where it wishes. Unquote. I'm so glad you joined me for this podcast. I know you have many choices when it comes to podcasts, and I'm humbled and grateful you've chosen to spend your time with us listening to Joseph Campbell. Please join me again on the first of next month when we will explore more Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.